Again, anyone that's coming in, you're welcome to sit up front here using a zafu if you like. As you check in with yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, if it feels like it's, you'd like to just bring your awareness to the breath, be mindful of breathing in and breathing out. We'll just sit for a few minutes as we begin to settle and arrive and become present.
So settling down into this place called here, into this time called now. You can do that with the simple feel of your breath coming and going at your belly or your nostrils. And see if you might and if you like to stay in touch with this throughout the day. It is coming and going and it's real handy. You can feel it. And when you do feel it, you're here. Been privileged and honored for many years to be teaching with my dear friend Bob. Many of our retreats programs, we start with a lovely poem from Mary Oliver called The Journey. I'd like to share it with you here. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. Mend my life. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, a new voice that you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save, a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, Determined to do the only thing you could do. Determined to save the only life you could save. So welcoming yourself at the same time as we welcome you with these intentions to be in touch with yourself with this moment, to be in touch with this place called here as we proceed. And maybe congratulating yourself for giving yourself this day and this gift of mindfulness to explore how it can be that mindfulness is in medicine and can be helpful in healthcare and psychotherapy. A day for you. And we don't often congratulate ourselves or say thanks to ourselves, but it's a wonderful thing to do and it's a big part of self-compassion of loving kindness for yourself, who we usually ignore for others. We'll be going over mindfulness-based stress reduction, a program that was created many years ago by John Kabat-Zinn that Bob and I both teach at different medical centers and have for a long time. And we'll be looking at how mindfulness fits in medicine and psychotherapy. We'll touch on some of the research, how these Skills of mindfulness can be translated into health and healing and stress reduction and pain reduction. How we might be able to use this kind of awareness and sensitivity to care for ourselves and work with our experience of anxiety and depression and pain and 
all the different symptoms that come from chronic stress-related illnesses. We'll uh, be exploring these different aspects of mindfulness <coughs> and medicine over the morning, and then we'll begin providing you with practical experience of mindfulness and the body, mindfulness and stillness practices. Really the basis of mindfulness in medicine and healthcare in society is mindfulness. How many people in here already have a mindfulness meditation practice? And how many people in here are coming for the first time and this is your first exposure to mindfulness? So good, a few of you here. You know, it's a very important thing that in doing this, we give you what this program is all about, that we teach from and that we try to provide the people that come through our programs. <coughs> How many people in here are healthcare professionals? And, and mental health and rather good physical health. Thank you. <coughs> and um, in, a, in a few minutes, we'd uh, like to uh, talk with you about this program and what brings you here. But maybe just uh, at the very beginning, let's just ask if we might. And I'd just like to check in with a couple of people, and then we're going to break you into small groups and give you a chance to talk about this a little. What brings you here? If I could just hear from a couple of persons, what are you doing here? And what do you want? Don't all talk at once. <laughs> yes? Well, I've had a meditation practice, but not, haven't really, I've gotten away from it in the past quite a few months. And now I'm going through some life transitions, and I just, it's time to get back. Could you hear her? No. Okay. So you just, repeat, just repeat the question, the answer. You've uh, used to have a practice. You've wandered away from it. You've noticed what it feels like to wander away from it, and you want to come back. Great. Thanks. Who else? Yes? I'm just trying to find some peace with my pain. Mm. We'll talk about this today. She's just trying to find some peace with her pain. What else? Who else? Yes? Until now, I'm in a phase where I'm trying to find my own structure outside of taking care of things in the future and reduce the stress because it's still in my body. She used to be in health care and working as a grief counselor. It became overwhelming and the stress overcame her. And she's no longer working in that field. She wants to find her way back to her center and uh, maybe find a way to work with the stress she's still carrying. Maybe one more, yes.
this lady has a, a biofeedback system. <laughs> it's called multiple sclerosis. It lets her know when she has wandered away from practice that uh, speaks up. And she has had a practice and as the First Lady spoke, left it and wants to return to it to see once again this reduction in the terrible symptoms of multiple sclerosis. So let's, let's break into small groups of maybe three or four, just with the people nearest you. And let's talk with one another a little bit about what brings you here and what you would like to get from here. And we'll ring the bells in about five minutes or so, ten minutes.
So it's always um, <clears throat> wonderful to hear the, it's almost like a symphony of connection and interconnection. <laughs> so I trust that we've all had some moments here sharing what has brought us here, what we're hoping for. And um, we thought that we would go into a little bit of some of the history of MBSR. This is kind of the, more of the concise didactic portion of the day and we will not do a lot of it because we it is said that actually an, an ounce of practice is better than tons of theories and so if we really want to learn about MBSR <coughs> we have to be inside it as a practitioner to embrace it to embody the practice people ask me I do a lot of teacher training and um, the training really comes down to embodiment of the practice inside yourself in your own unique expression that only you can do of who you are. You can't be anyone else other than who you are. So we will spend some time now talking a little bit about MBSR and its origins and some of the research and then we'll begin to go into some practice. <clears throat> and of course uh, intertwined within the day and within the practices there'll be time for some discussions as well. So we will have some question and answer and discussion with what comes up within the practice. But maybe uh, first a little bit of some history and mindfulness-based stress reduction was developed by uh, John Kabat-Zinn in 1979 at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Can everyone hear me okay back there? Yeah? Okay, good. John Kabat-Zinn was a scientist, is a scientist, graduated from MIT and with a PhD in molecular biology. And while he was going to school there, he, I believe, heard a, a lecture. Philip Kaplow, who wrote The Three Pillars of Zen, was invited to give a talk at MIT, and John Kabat-Zinn heard him and, and was deeply moved about mindfulness and began practicing mindfulness and got very much into it and began uh, studying in the Zen traditions, Vipassana traditions, and also in some Tibetan traditions. But after graduating from uh, UMass, uh, from MIT, he got hired as a faculty at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center outside in Worcester. And in his early career, he uh, was teaching in the medical school. And he also was um, practicing very intensively mindfulness meditation. And the story goes that while he was on retreat at Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, it's a little bit outside of Worcester, about 45-minute drive, wonderful meditation center, kind of the sister or brother, you could say, of Spirit Rock. And it was there while he was on retreat, he reflected on his love of mindfulness meditation and his love of science and medicine and health, well-being. And he began to ponder, reflect upon um, how could these two worlds come together. And in some moments, evidently, of wonderful inspiration, he, um, this whole idea of a mindfulness-based stress reduction program arose in his mind, in his heart. And also within that inspiration, he said he felt that um, maybe one day these programs will be like all over the world. Uh -huh. 
Some years ago, I asked him about this. He goes, I know, it feels like a deja vu. So it's an amazing just to hear like an inspiration that arose in your heart made manifest. And literally now millions of people have heard about this and been touched by it. And, you know, we think about, you know, why go away in a cave and meditate? Well, we're still talking about the Buddha 2,600 years later. And this center is here because of that. So let us not underestimate the power of one individual's inspiration and awakening and what can happen. And those potential seeds of fruition lie in every one of us, not in some of us, but in all of us. We all have the seeds of awakening. One of the slogans we sometimes say when we begin the first class of Mindful Space Stress Reduction, MBSR, is that there is more right with you than wrong with you. That within each of us, there are these deep inner resources of amazing healing, wisdom, compassion. Within us, just as sometimes uh, as a metaphor, Michelangelo already saw David standing in the block of marble, just chipped a little bit of it away. <laughs> David was standing, always been standing right there inside it. So from that inspiration at IMS, he wrote up a proposal for a pilot program at UMass Medical Center, appealed to the medical staff to send to him people that they're having difficulties working with, a lot of chronic pain patients, people just dealing with uncomfortable, hard situations, and let's see what happens if they go through a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And of course, John, being a scientist, began to collect data and do pre and post and testings and um, discovered that this was incredibly beneficial. And in the early years, wrote a number of different studies that were published in major medical journals on the benefits of mindfulness meditation. Some of the early studies, um, they were not control double-blind studies, so uh, the, the research has grown much since those early days. But even still, after four years, a group of, of chronic pain patients reported that they were dealing with their pain much better than four years earlier. A group of people that were diagnosed with panic and anxiety disorder showed that even after three years their panic and anxiety was being dealt with much better. In 1993, Bill Moyers was putting together a five-part series called Healing in the Mind. And how many of you have seen that, Healing in the Mind? Quite a number, yeah. And um, I'm not sure how the connection was, but Bill Moyers found out about John Kabat-Zinn's program and asked John if they could have that be part of the five-part series. And, of course, it was a yes. And in February of 1993, the Bill Moyers aired Healing in the Mind that featured one of uh, the five-part series on mindfulness-based stress reduction. And from that point on, the phone has uh, not stopped ringing. Virtually the next day, there was um, tremendous, tremendous interest 
people calling, how can I do this at my medical center? And mindfulness-based stress reduction has grown so exponentially, it's quite amazing. There's over 250 medical centers in the United States that offer mindfulness-based stress reduction. Actually, in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have the largest uh, group of mindfulness-based stress reduction programs in the world. <laughs> Here in Toronto, and also, in, of course, in Massachusetts. But also, mindfulness-based stress reduction has spread internationally. It is found on every continent of the world. I actually, um, this summer, went to Australia and did a teacher training for mindfulness-based stress reduction teachers. And MBSR in Australia, people, it is on fire. There is so many people interested in this. And of course, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction has influenced or enhanced or developed other fields of mindfulness-based interventions. We actually have an international conference every year at UMass Medical Center, and it's called the Mindfulness-Based Intervention Conference. It's an international event that happens in the springtime, and there we find people from all over the world, and we also discover the different hybrid, if you will, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs. There's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that many of you are aware of, and of course, mindfulness has an important a link in dialectical behavioral therapy. There's mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting that's being developed at UCSF with Nancy Bardicke. There's mindfulness-based eating awareness therapy, M-B-E-A-T, working. <laughs> so there's mindfulness-based this, mindfulness-based that. We call them the hybrids. And, um, but we find that there is an incredible <coughs> hunger which I think that mindfulness has a way of helping the hunger to be seen, to be recognized, to be acknowledged, to be loved, to, be, to develop some ways of working within ourselves in the midst of our stress, pain, and illness. John's genius also reflected on the type of language that we use in mindfulness-based stress reduction. Here we are sitting in a Buddhist meditation center. We've got some embodiment statues behind us. But of course, in the medical centers, we, we won't find these type of uh, images. And the skillfulness of mindfulness-based stress reduction is bringing it into mainstream world. In the early years, I wouldn't even use the word meditation. We'd say we're going to do some awareness exercises. But as the name of meditation and mindfulness has grown, and even in the Star Wars movie, Qui-Gon says to Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi to be mindful. And we find that mindfulness is being used in our everyday language. The genius of John Kabat-Zinn is, is working on developing a type of a language that is understandable and relatable to all persuasions of life. I actually run a program in, in San Jose at O'Connor Hospital, which is a daughter of Charities Hospital. When you walk in, this. Uh, a Mary statue, and the Pope is a big picture of the Pope in the, in the lobby, and yet our program is housed in chaplain services. It is considered part of the chaplain program of the hospital. Most of the priests and nuns have been through our mindfulness training and find it to be incredibly helpful, not only for them, but of course for the patients and people that we serve. And I really attribute to that mindfulness-based stress reduction is part of mind-body medicine. And so we're skillful in trying to use language that is relatable. Our job is not to try to get people to come up to Spirit Rock or to become a Buddhist. 
However, people begin to do this practice and they begin to realize by the end of the class the potentialities, like just how far can you go with this stuff. I mean, this is much more than just a stress reduction class. This is really about understanding the nature of our mind and what fuels perhaps our deepest suffering and fears and pains. So there's a great skillfulness in MBSR as it interfaces with mainstream medicine, mainstream society, a very skillful means. Now, just to give you an idea of the template of the program so you have a sense of what it's about, John, the way it is developed, we have actually now an international certification process. There is particular standards when someone says that you're doing an MBSR program, the, 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 it has to meet certain definitions, otherwise everyone's just putting up on their shop, you know, I'm doing mindfulness-based stress reduction, but what is actually going on inside there? So there is program standards. We have been really looking at trying to uh, make this more clear so it's understandable to offer and honor the credibility of this work. So generally speaking, a MBSR program is eight weeks long. Often there's an introductory session before the eight-week program to introduce people, orient people to what this program is about, the eight-week program, so that people can then self-select into it. They have an orientation and understand what they're walking into. And it's very wonderful to actually work with a whole bunch of people that are self-selecting into your classes. They want to be there. It's almost like transformation is just waiting to happen. If you just don't fuck it up, if, if you just kind of get out of the way a little bit, it'll all happen. Just let the practice come through. And so people are wanting to be there. And often what is motivating them to be there, why they want to go there, is because they're living with stress, pain, and illness. These are very powerful incentives. When my body's hurting, I'm having headaches and chronic pain, I'm living with the illness and the stresses and the unknown of what's happening, or the stresses of just living, trying to balance family life, work life, home life, personal life. And of course, sometimes there's people that come because they want to improve their health and well-being. There's high blood pressure in the family, and I want to learn some ways to try to um, prevent these things from happening. So there's a wide range of different reasons, but people are self-selecting. They want to come there often because they're suffering. And that's a powerful incentive. And, you know, what brought me to my own meditation practice wasn't because everything was copacetic and wonderful. It was because I was suffering, and it was because of my own pain that drove me to want to look inside and try to understand more about what was fueling that pain. And so we get a chance to work with people that are really wanting to work on themselves. So the program begins with this um, orientation and then we meet once a week for eight weeks. Generally each class is two to two and a half hours. In the sixth week we offer a day long. It's part of um, the program where we put a day of practice together that includes all of the different meditation practices that we've been learning the past six weeks. The practices that we work with, and we're going to actually do them today, the first practice that we work with is called the body scan meditation, which is a very powerful practice of bringing awareness, beginning with our left foot, 
and working our way part by part through the body up to the top of our head. And there actually is no magic about starting with the left foot. You could start with the right foot. You could start with the right hand. But since this program is being researched so much and studied, we have to have a consistent body scan. So it's not, we all recognize there's no magic to the left foot. And at the same time, when we say the body scan, that we all have a common understanding and definition of what the body scan is. But we begin with the body scan to begin to inhabit into the body. There's a wonderful uh, quote that often is used in MBSR classes from the <clears throat> Dubliners by James Joyce of a character in the book. His name was Mr. Duffy. And it was said of him that Mr. Duffy happened to live a short distance away from his body. <laughs> Lived a short distance away from his body. And many of us can relate at times to living somewhere else other than in our bodies, unless, of course, we get sick and get in pain. And so we began with this very powerful practice of body practice, feeling and sensing into the body part by part, noticing what it may evoke physically, mentally, and emotionally. We talk about an MBSR. This is the triangle of awareness or the triangle of our lives. That we, we live within our bodies, our thoughts, and emotions. And our mindfulness practice is attending with awareness to what is arising in the body, what is coming up with thoughts and emotions, and beginning to acknowledge what's present. And so we work with developing the body scan. And then we also work in developing, very important, is mindfulness in our everyday life. So in many ways, what we talk about the mindfulness practice, it becomes a way of life. There's the formal practices of being still, working with the body scan, and the sitting meditation that I'll tell you about in a minute, but also the informal practices of mindfulness, of learning how to become more mindful in our everyday life. Steve was mentioning earlier that um, you know, the only moment we ever live in is right now. And yet at times we're thinking ahead, Thinking in the past. As a friend of mine said, it seems like my mind's either rehearsing or rehashing all the time. <laughs> and if we could actually bottle that as an energy source, we wouldn't have a problem. So in our mindfulness practice, we're learning how to become more present using this practice of mindfulness. MBSR also incorporates some of the uh, teachings in stress psychology, as well as the group process of interaction. What makes it very wonderful is that in each class we do a period of meditation practice, like the body scan, and we also do some yoga. Yoga is the preferred movement, though at times people will, will also do walking meditation, sometimes qigong. But in each class, we'll do a guided meditation and a guided mindful movement, and then we'll be breaking into small group dis discussion to discuss how the practices are going. And then we'll come back into a large group and discuss with one another as well, and that's where some of the teaching comes out of through the group discussion. The um, body scan is the first meditation practice that we work with as well as introducing this mindfulness in day-to-day -day living. And what we are asking each participant is to actually go home and practice this at home as well. So not only do we do it in the class, but we want to bring it into our lives. So often uh, people will get an instructional guide, you know, a CD of the body scan, the sitting meditation, as well as various homework assignments, if you will, of trying to bring mindfulness into your day-to-day -day life. One acronym that we sometimes like to use is the acronym called STOP, and that's in your handout that I gave you as well. But S stands to stop, T stands to take a breath, O stands to observe, and P stands to proceed on.
And there's so many times during the day that we're not stopping and we're not taking a breath and we're not observing what's actually happening. And so I'll always hear different reports from people that are doing this practice that all of a sudden they realize when they just stopped for a moment that their shoulders were up higher than their ears. Or they were on the computer and they were playing this kind of email urination game. Like, can I just do one more email before I have to go pee? One more email before I pee. Anybody, anybody know that game? Well, once we become mindful, we can begin to change. So we actually, there's a beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl that says, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. That's a very powerful statement. Between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom. And often we don't see the space between the stimulus and the response because of our impulsive reactivity that's born from our you know, our, our, our habits and our ways. When we become mindful, and that, even that moment of stopping is that intervention of stopping between the stimulus and the response. We begin to recognize what is here, and in that moment of recognition, we can choose perhaps a more constructive way of dealing with what's happening rather than a destructive way. So sometimes we talk about the differences between responding to stress, which is accompanied with mindfulness and choice, and reacting to stress, which is often accompanied with impulsive, mindless reactivity. There's a wonderful poem by uh, Patricia Nelson called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. I think it's on even the backside if you hand out. But she goes in chapter one that I'm walking down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I fall in, and I'm helpless. And it takes a long time, but I finally get out. In chapter 2, I'm walking down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I see where I am. It's my fault. I get out quickly. In chapter 3, I'm walking down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again. It's a habit. You know, this is kind of what I do. <laughs> Many of us end up in chapter 3 for a while. But as we grow in mindfulness and begin to recognize the spaces between the stimulus and the response, in chapter 4, I'm walking down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I walk around the hole. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. <laughs> so the potentials for being able to change our responses comes with this awareness. Awareness is so vitally important. And so we are really encouraging those that are attending our classes to bringing this mindfulness into our day-to-day -day life. And the wonderful thing is the moment that you realize that you're not present, guess what? You are. You're back again. And so we work from that perspective, not to blame ourselves uh, for where we've been, but to congratulate ourselves that we're back again. So we try to also infuse, if you will, this class with kindness, the sense of being able to connect, that, that pe people sometimes feel like, you know, I, I can't meditate. By the end of the eight weeks, they feel, people, many people feel, I can meditate. Because the, the whole idea behind many people's thoughts and meditations is just keep your mind one-pointed and it shouldn't wander. But in mindfulness, we're just attending to, to watching the wandering mind and coming back again, acknowledging where we went. There's actually benefits when we begin to watch the mind wandering. First of all, just because we're trying to apply our mindfulness to stay on an object, it's helping to build our concentration. But also, if we keep on wandering off to some issues that we're not dealing with, and then it's beginning to reveal to us some things that we need to take care of business off. And lastly, 
it begins to help us show our mind-body connection. I might have been off worrying about whatever is here, and all of a sudden I come back and I notice my jaw's clenched, my belly's tight, I'm holding tight, and I begin to make the connection between my thoughts and emotions in my body. This is one of the very important aspects of how does mindfulness fit into mind-body medicine. And, of course, in the mind-body connection, there's a great interest, neuroscientists, interest in understanding this connection between our thoughts and emotions in our body, and the evidence is overwhelming of this interconnection. So if indeed our thoughts and emotions affect our bodies, the more that we can actually be mindful of the thoughts that we're thinking and the emotions that we're feeling, this will be to a great advantage. Again, if we're not mindful, we will continue to habituate perhaps certain reactions that don't serve our health and well-being. You get stuck in traffic, and next thing you know, you're holding so tightly on the steering wheel that your knuckles are turning white, you're having all this muscle skeletal tension, you begin to get irritated, and your breathing gets more rapid and more irregular, and we're into this stress reaction. But the moment that all of a sudden you stop, take a breath, observe, oh, I'm holding tightly. Oh, there's not someone sitting next to me pointing a gun at me telling me to do this. I am doing this to myself. I am my own greatest adversary at times. And now that I become aware that I'm holding tightly, I can release the grip. I'm sitting here breathing very rapidly, very irregularly. As I'm all irritated and worked up, I begin to acknowledge those feelings. I come back to the breath in the belly, feeling my belly expand on an inhalation, contract on an exhalation. Gradually, my breath is coming back into regulation. So I'll just, I'm going to just speak just another minute, then Steve's going to continue on. So in going through the eight-week program, we begin with the body scan. We develop this mindfulness in everyday living. And then we introduce the, and the yoga I was mentioning, and then we introduce in about the fourth or fifth week the guided sitting meditation that we will also be doing today that expands the field of awareness not only to feeling sensations in the body, but to become mindful of the different sounds that we're hearing, even becoming mindful of different mind states. And ultimately, in this practice of present moment awareness of just sitting in the now and just observing what's coming up in the body and mind. As we go through this eight-week program, people really get a chance because this interaction, every class is practice, there's yoga, this small group discussion, this large group discussion, we're discussing in detail about the practice and what we're learning about ourselves as we're going through the practice week by week, what is being evoked. And um, so by the end of two months, people have developed a practice. And then we often, of course, have follow-up programs. Uh, we have a weekly drop-in meditation group that people can come to for free. People are always invited freely to any of our day-long sessions that we offer throughout the years um, to, to, to renew the practice. Some people actually end up coming up to Spirit Rock and start doing more formal, intensive practice. So that gives you a little bit of an overview of some of the structure of MBSR, eight weeks, two and a half hours, the different practices, and I think I'll let Steve um, continue on from here. And, and just keeping in line with these instructions, that there's a, there's a relationship between how you think and how you feel emotionally. There's a relationship to how you think and feel in your body. And you start paying attention to your own mind, which is what mindfulness practice is. You sit and you open up this space of awareness. And into this awareness enters all the things you typically try to avoid, right? 
all, the, all your old neuroses come in, the things that scare you come in, the things that you don't like, your thing, the things that you're ashamed of, the things that have happened to you, your grief, your anguish, your terror, your fear, your pain, the things you've been exposed to. You've got this little space and you're just sitting in the space and you're witnessing what comes in. Doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> but one of the great values of this practice is growing in this ability to witness what is. Our lives are created in many ways. We create them through a, this effort of trying to push things away that we don't want. I don't want this. I don't like that. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to remember that. And then the other side of it is that I want something. We're always grasping after or trying to push away. But some of the things that we come to discover with practice is those things that we try to escape from pursue us. They follow us. Some years ago, I, I, was, I had a big piece of property adjoining my own, and I used to farm it. And I'd go up there with my old tractor, and from time to time in this big field, you'd see the shadow go zipping by on the field, and you'd look up, and eight miles high, there's an a, a, a airliner traveling hundreds of miles an hour. There's a shadow following right behind. And you know when that plane lands, the shadow's going to be right at its wheel. And it's the same thing for all of us. We can't escape from pain and fear and loss. That it, there is death, there is old age, there is illness, there's pain. And somehow in our lives we've got to find a way to work with these things. This practice is turning towards opening up this space and learning to witness and observe and be with our pain to investigate it, to be with our anxiety, to be with our depression. So the people that come into our programs at the medical centers are, for the most part, coming in by physician referral. In Chico, where I'm from, is a kind of a small enclosed area. And, uh, what my reputation, the reputation of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program is, is that the doctors have learned over the years that if you can't think of anything else to do with somebody, send them to this program. <laughs> we've tried all the medicines, we've tried all the interventions, we've tried this, we've tried that, and they still are suffering. And maybe this can help you. And so people show up here because medicine has gone as far as it can to help. And what we discover is we start actually opening the space and witnessing our pain, our suffering, that we are the principal authors of our own suffering. Right? And one of the things we might say at the beginning of a mindfulness-based stress reduction program is that stress is 5 to 10% what's been going on in your life and 90 to 95% your way of looking at it. How many people would agree with that? That means 95% of your stress is because of you. You yourself are responsible for creating stress in your life. If you are the authors then of your own suffering, which is another word for stress, then there is also a huge amount you can do for yourself. This wonderful quote, the, 
that Bob brought up, uh, between the stimulus and the response, there's a space, and in that space lies our freedom. You put it in context with some of the other things that Viktor Frankl had to teach. That was that he would witness men come into the barracks in Auschwitz that were administered to the dying, and holding them in their laps, talk to them and comfort them, though themselves were skeletal and dying, and sometimes offer them their last crust of bread, though those last crust of bread were very precious. And he said, this, these people provide sufficient proof that there's one thing that nobody can take away from you, no matter what they do to you. They cannot take away your way of looking at things. Your way of looking at things is creating your world, and thus we can say there's more you can do for yourself than anybody else can when it comes to anxiety, very often with many chronic conditions, depression, chronic pain. We start investigating our own pain rather than trying to get away from it, turning towards the skid like we do on the ice when the car's sliding. The very direction we don't want to go. We don't want to look into the source of our anxiety. We don't want to look into the source of our depressions. And so they pursue us. This wonderful pain from Jennifer Payne Wellwood says that, um, just a share a piece of it. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee, I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I turn towards transforms me. But learning to turn toward your pain and your grief and your suffering and your shame is not easy. So it's really not a practice for the faint of heart. It's, the more you try to escape, the more you get stuck. So we sometimes use the images of Chinese handcuffs, of trying to escape, trying to escape. And the more you try to escape, the more it tightens around you. We have a choice about how we look at things. We have a choice about how we look at things. So pain medicine became somewhere in World War II where they were discovering that they were sending huge amounts of morphine to the battlefront that wasn't being used. And they couldn't figure out why weren't these men who were losing legs and arms who were terribly injured were not using the morphine. And so they sent a group of investigators, and in no time flat they discovered these men were going home. Their pain was almost 60% less, and they were using 60% less of the morphine because they were on their way home. They were leaving the battlefield. They were leaving the slaughter from the, the killing and watching their friends be killed. And their pain was that much less, their use of medicine with them. So people will come into this program as they start recognizing how they can work with pain by turning towards it, by investigating, by working with their own stories in relation to the pain, their resistance. So one of the things we may discover is that resistance times pain equals suffering. You may not be able to escape from the pain of life, but you do have a choice about how much you suffer, how you react to your pain, may exacerbate and inflame it. And with this, there's been a great deal of science. And these are words that maybe we can all understand and know from our own lives as maybe all wisdom comes from our own experience. And some of the things that Bob and I are saying 
are probably familiar to you. Is it new? Uh, saw a bumper sticker years ago and said, having a good time, wish I was here. <laughs> Most of the time we're not here. Most of the time we're not here. And another one I saw, actually in Santa Cruz, it said, don't believe everything you think. We are here thinking up our lives. We've got our habits of mind. We want to take everything off of automatic. We, act, we have to be here to do that. And so where, where the research is, and where the science is, really been making some headway is in neuroscience and neuroresearch. People like Richard Davidson and uh, University of uh, Wisconsin that are making incredible discoveries about the way the human brain works and the mind in relation to the brain. And Dan Siegel, with his work in California, some of his books uh, highlight this. That what, what they're saying is that the mind creates the brain to give expression to itself. Isn't that the most interesting thing? The mind is creating the brain to give expression to itself. We change our brains by the way we think. We're creating up to 40,000 new neurons a day. Now this changes all the medical books that were up to about eight years ago or so. We believed that we weren't always creating new neurons, but we are. And we change our brains in relation to how we think, but also particularly about how we feel, what we do emotionally, how, where we hang out emotionally in our lives and our habits of mind will actually change our brains. And one of the things they see with just an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program, the left prefrontal lobe changes enormously and becomes filled with all these synapses, uh, synaptogenesis, and uh, all these neural connections made it so it lights up in PET scans and it grows and it changes physically and measurably again and again in person after person. And one of the things that Dan Siegel said a couple of years ago at a, a program in Chico is that what they've seen also is it grows fibers and it grows down this center between the two hemispheres and it goes down and surrounds the amygdala with all these fibers. And there's a connection then between the left prefrontal lobe and the amygdala. And this is the area of the brain known for self-calming and self-soothing and we see grows in terms of emotional states of being at peace. And it actually sends signals through these fibers and uh, suppress a, a neurotransmitter, uh, inhibitory transmitter called gamma globulin, I think. And he said, this is, we call surrounding the amygdala with gamma goo. And we, we, and this, I mean, amygdala is considered the hub of fear in the body and a few other things. It actually, in practice, in times, allow us to calm mental states that create suffering. The stuff of rage, of grief, of terror, of fear, of hostility. And calm our anger by growing in awareness. Our mind changes, our brain changes. And we can change our brains then in ways that are beneficial to us by our gradual use of learning, learning to use our brains more consciously, more deliberately, taking everything off of automatic, noticing how we are living. And so that, uh, Bob and I just wrote a book together. We're arguing about the title of it. Should it be The Fiction of Me or The Myth of Me? But 
Well, what do you think? Is the fiction of me better or the myth of me better? How many people say fiction? How many people say myth? Uh -huh. <laughs> 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 well, you guys just chose the title of the book. We've got this me character we're totally identified with, and it's got all my story mixed into it. The things that have happened to me, the things that have happened with my parents, the things that they didn't give me, the things they did give me too much, the things that I did, the things that I should have done, the things I shouldn't have done. And I've got the whole thing going on in here, and this is where I tend to live, and I repeat it, and I can make myself miserable. Some years ago, I was sitting doing my morning meditation practices, my, my, my jaw, my lips were hurting, and I looked at her completely poked out. <laughs> and I thought they're not usually poked out like that, I don't think. And so I did, just as we encourage people to look into, feel into, what is this? What's going on here? And, and I did that, and just a moment I realized I hadn't been meditating at all for about the last 10 minutes. I've been having this angry diatribe with my neighbor. <laughs> and his damn dogs that were barking, and he didn't give a damn about anybody doesn't care about his neighbors, doesn't care about the dogs. And I was telling him in my mind about this, and he's a nice guy, he does care. But I had this whole trip going on, and my, my realization was that there's a relationship between my anger and my lips. I never knew this. And everybody's got it different, you know, but my, oh, my lips. And so ever since then, every time I see people, those really wrinkly lips, I'm real careful. They've been pissed off a long time. <laughs> We affect our bodies by how we think and feel. Our bodies change. We're all going to do it different. See, people do it in their shoulders. These are often our anxiety muscles. And some people do it in their guts. And some people do it in their butts. We all got our own places where we bring anger and grief and anxiety. In one of my classes years ago, there was two women with IBS. And during the class, uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And during the body scan, as often happens, we're laying during our meditation, one of them begins to sob. And within minutes, you know, a few other people in the room start sobbing. We're contagious that way. <laughs> and so they're crying, crying, crying. It's all good. We're doing the meditation, and I'm bringing tissue around the room, and it's happening. And at the end of class, one of the women came up to me, and she said, I have IBS. And I had terrible symptoms before coming to this class, and I almost didn't come. But I made the most remarkable discovery. As I cried, my pain subsided in my gut. I've never felt that before. And about 10 minutes later, the other woman came up and said the same thing to me. Ah, interesting. That somehow our tears are connected to our bodies, as well as our happiness. And so the, in doing the work I do, I work full-time as a psychotherapist doing individual counseling and doing couples counseling, working with groups and individuals. And each day, I too am exposed to enormous human suffering. And I have to find some way to deal with what I feel. One of the wonderful things in this last chapter of the book Bob included was, I see you, Mara. And speaking to the experience of the Buddha as he was being tempted just before our enlightenment, and he is all of a sudden faced with this onslaught of fierce demons that are the most scary, ferocious 
monsters that just came upon him as a great army. And seeing that this was an embodiment of Mara, this, this part of our mind of the world that creates fear, anger, and hostility, he said, I see you, Mara, and placed his hand on the earth. And these things had no effect on him. And minutes later, seeing that this wasn't getting him, suddenly he was surrounded by this wonderful parade of beautiful women and music and fragrances and movements and dancing. And, and he felt that, strong, that pull of desire. And he said, I see you, Mara, and put his hand on the earth. And once again, that suffering was dissipated in those reactions between the fear and the anger and the craving and the lust and the desires, we create suffering in our lives. And we can begin to see how we create suffering in our lives by investigating our way of thinking. We do this right within the session with our patients, with our clients. I am aware of myself as I'm listening to somebody, what I'm taking in, what I'm putting out, what I am offering, what I'm not offering. I can see that where my own craving comes in, my own fear comes in. And I meet it in the same way with this kind of awareness. This practice is not only built upon being present on purpose without judging, but it also has a huge component of compassion, self-compassion and compassion for others. And they grow up, one grows out of the other, and of loving kindness. What am I doing with my mind in this meeting? What am I doing with my mind in this talk I'm giving right now? Feeling myself in my body, being grounded in the present moment, not getting lost in the story. When I do get lost in the story, noticing I've been lost in the story and coming back. This is something you do quite a lot in practice, right? You'll be sitting, sitting, you'll be off somewhere, you notice you're off somewhere, you come back. You might do this thousands of times in any given meditation practice. And you might do this thousands of times as you're sitting with a patient that is telling you this horror story of their life. And you're lost in it. And up comes your hatred and your anger for the person that hurt them. And you come back again. And your grief and your shame and your fear and your deep empathy for their suffering. And you're lost in it. And you come back again. You are still grounded and you're with them, and you're not lost in your own minds. And I don't just do this in my practice with my patients, but also daily in my life. Some years ago, I was leaving my front yard and headed down to the creek by my house, and my wife sees me leaving the yard, and she shouts out the window, where are you going, honey? And I turned on my heel. I was in a terrible mood, and I said, I'm going down to the river to club rats. Now she knows that I'd never even heard a bug. So she comes running out the door and she goes, honey, are you all right? I heard this awful comment in a movie years ago. I said, I'm sorry, honey, I got you temporarily confused with my mother. And you can't tell me where I'm going. I'm going down to the creek because I feel like kind of stressed out. We catch ourselves in our stories, in our reactive minds. So there's, there's, a, there's a ton of research uh, I could talk about with this. But that research is uh, available to you. Bob and I both have websites. And, and uh, on those websites, uh, you will find links to research at University of Massachusetts Medical Center and many other places. You, these studies that have to do, we see anxiety, 
rejections, of depression reductions, pain reductions, and uh, improvements in quality of life and well-being. Here's one other piece and I'll share with you, and it has to do with that we affect one another. We're none of this in this alone. We affect one another in huge ways. And some of the research they're doing involves putting these little nets on people's head that have hundreds of little sensors that are picking up signals in the brain, and then they'll put a therapist together with a client or two loving partners or a mother and her baby and then they'll watch the readouts on the computer monitors. And they see that the mother is feeding the baby at her breast. And the, their brains are communicating with each other at the same time. And they're pulsing together. And they're pulsing at the same intervals, at the same pace, and the same speed. And what they're watching, watching this thing, they call it resonance. And they, they brought these two words that we used to have in our hippie days, attunement which means I can connect with this other person's brain and, they, and feel what they're feeling. And we have this other word called resonance. That means I feel you connecting with me. Resonance is to feel felt. So now it's part of the neuroscience literature. We used to say it in love-ins. <laughs> and, and the mother is, a, is changing the baby's brain as she's holding the baby. And they're communicating with this. But even more important, the baby is changing the mother's brain as she is holding the baby, and they're watching these things influence one another. And they do this with, with uh, patients and counselors and doctors and their patients. And we see there is a connection we have with one another. We're all in this together. We influence one another. And when we're here together in awareness and mindfulness, we have a chance of really growing and contributing to each other's growth. So there is a little bit about mindfulness of medicine. I think it's about time for us to take a break, huh? Let's just take a, a small break. We'll be uh, coming back here at 11, at 11 o'clock, so just about 10 minutes or so. We're going to do a, a mindful yoga practice. So as you come back into the room, find a space where you can lay out and be flat on your back. And if you need to move your chair, do so. And of course, if there's anyone in the room that is not able to lie down, stay in your chair. So we always make this workable. Of course, when we work in hospitals, we're working with people with, at times, various challenges. So sit where you feel safe and comfortable. Lie. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.